Amen. Yeah, you can be seated. Good morning, Life Church. That was pretty lame. <laughs> but I'm not going to rebuke you right out of the gate, right? So I'm glad you're here. Welcome to worship with us. I'm glad to see you. Whether you're in the room with us or participating online via our live stream, we're really grateful that the Lord has brought you to worship with us today. Um, this is a big day here at Life Church for a number of reasons. Uh, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And we always come into the room eager to do that and excited about that opportunity. Uh, we witnessed the Lord's grace through the ordinance of baptism in our 9 a.m. service this morning. And we're going to get to share that with you via video in this service. And so we're excited about that. And then today was also the day that Life Kids, our ministry to children up through fifth grade, relaunched. And so for the first time since mid-September, I'm sorry, this is September, since mid-March, we welcomed kids back into the clubhouse, into our preschool rooms over on that side of the building. And uh, we were just really grateful for the opportunity to do that at 9 a.m. this morning. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent, we hope that you've been able to stay in the loop about what the registration and check-in protocols look like for all of that. Um, and so if you're interested in bringing your kids back to Life Kids, just make sure that you're aware of what you need to do in advance to save your spot there and then to be a part of that when the time comes. But we also want to recognize that there are a lot of families who just aren't quite ready for Life Kids yet, and we want to say that's okay. We're glad that you're here. And uh, parents who have been bringing kids into the auditorium, into the worship gathering, You've been doing a great job. Um, we want to encourage you to continue to do that if that's what you feel like is the right thing for you and for your family. And I'll just tell you that we will never be upset about a loud or rambunctious child in the auditorium during the worship gathering. I will never be upset by a loud or rambunctious child while I'm preaching because, listen, we're a family, and sometimes families have loud and rambunctious children. And so we're glad when that happens and just want to encourage you to keep doing what seems right and wise for you and your family in this season. Having said that, we were thrilled this morning to be able to open the doors to Life Kids again, and it was great to have the energy in the building that that translated to as 50 or 60 children were over there. And uh, man, I just wanted to make sure that we took a moment um, to pray this morning for the relaunch of Life Kids. And I say that, of course, we want to pray that the Lord would allow us to you know, handle that with uh, safety and all of the extra measures of precaution that are necessary in this particular season to be welcoming somewhat large groups of children back into our facility. Uh, but even more than that, we wanted to take a moment to pray for Life Kids this morning because we believe that what the Lord is allowing us to do in Life Kids matters eternally. Right? We believe that the children the Lord has brought to our church, hundreds of children that the Lord has brought to our church, that this is not a, a small matter, but is indeed a great privilege that we should steward wisely and carefully and well as a church. And we believe that what we do in Life Kids matters eternally, that their souls are at stake. Because no child, regardless of whether or not he or she is born into a Christian family, no child is born immediately into the kingdom of Christ just by magic because of the fact that their parents happen to attend church. No, children come into the world lost sinners in need of a savior, just as you and I are lost sinners in need of a savior. And so the work of our disciple makers, it is an eternally consequential and significant work. And so we should pray that the Lord would be through the ministry of life kids, 
opening the eyes of young children to see the truth of the gospel, opening their hearts to perceive the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us. We should be praying that the Lord would empower our disciple makers to proclaim truth to them. We should pray that he would, yes, be allowing us to keep people safe and healthy, but even beyond that. We should be praying that he would allow us to capture the hearts of these young children so that they would be raised to know and love and follow King Jesus. That's the great privilege that we have as a church when it comes to the young children that the Lord has brought to us. And so let's take a moment this morning just to pray that God would make that ministry effective again as we're able to begin to walk in it again this morning. Pray with me, church. God, we are so grateful for um, the young families and the young children that you have brought to us as a body. We're so thankful for the opportunity that began again today for us to sow into their lives the seeds of your word, uh, to plant the gospel deep in their hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would make that work effective. Yes, God, we ask that you would keep children safe and, and healthy in this season. Yes, we ask that you would continue to make us diligent when it comes to health screening and cleaning protocols. And we pray that never would we be negligent about those things. But Lord, we recognize that those things are not the end. They're simply a means to the end. And that is we desire to see the young children of our church family come to know and treasure and love your son Jesus and to, to live their lives for him. And so we pray, Lord, because only you can do that, we pray that you would move in a mighty and powerful way through the ministry of Life Kids and in the families in our church body as we come together to disciple the children in our church family. Thank you for the opportunity today and to begin to walk in those rhythms in a fuller and truer way. And we pray that you would bring much fruit from that ministry in the season that is ahead. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now we can turn to the book of Philippians. If you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible on a device in front of you, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Last week, we jumped into a new teaching series in this book. We're going to spend a few months this fall walking through the first two chapters of Philippians. And then we'll take a little break for the Christmas season and come back in the new year, Lord willing, to look at the third and fourth chapters of this book. Uh, but we, we, we dove in to um, one of my favorite letters in the New Testament and a book that I think is going to help us just immensely in some key ways in this particular season of our lives and in this particular season of the church's life. It was 12 months ago, thereabout, that um, I and my wife were, were processing the opportunity to respond to Life Church's call to leave our home in Lincoln, Nebraska, and to move here to Salisbury, North Carolina, to serve you. Now, it wasn't a decision that was made in a moment, and in fact, there had been many months leading up to that decision while the leaders of Life Church were praying for and searching for their pastor of teaching and vision. In many months on my end, when I had been considering Life Church and the opportunity to serve you here, um, we had been talking to one another and praying together about whether or not this was the right fit and a good opportunity for us. But it was about a year ago, 12 months ago, that that decision was really finally made that we would leave our home in Lincoln, Nebraska and come here to serve you. And, and that was a decision that changed conceivably everything in our lives, right? I really don't think it's an overstatement to say that. I don't think there's one thing 
that hasn't changed in our lives because of that decision. So we made that decision. It was like flipping a light switch. Suddenly we just put into motion all of the things that we needed to do in order to come here, right? A for sale sign went in the yard of our, yard of our home. Like all of our material possessions in the world that we cared about, we started shoving into boxes. We started to say goodbye to the friends who were like family to us in the community that we had lived in. We began to shepherd our children through the process that it was going to look like to leave the home that they knew and to, to move into and plug into a new home. And really, that's all the stuff that happened just before we left. After we left Lincoln and arrived here in Salisbury in January, things continued to change for us. And I don't think there's, there's any overstatement in saying, as I look at my life today, there isn't one thing that isn't different because of that decision. But there's not one thing that hasn't been impacted. I think, I mean, I think every single prayer that I have prayed in the last 12 months has been shaped in some way by that decision. Every relationship with every person that I love and care about in my life, it's different today because of that decision. All of my hopes and dreams and ambitions for the future, not just for myself, but for my wife and for my children, they're all different today because of that one decision. That was one decision in our lives that changed every conceivable thing. Everything that I can think of or imagine is different because of that decision. In a small way, that illustrates the point of the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul writes Philippians a letter to the church in Philippi, and his main burden in writing this letter, the main thing that he wants to convey to his people there, and to teach his people there, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. Gospel, that means good news. So when we say the gospel, it's the good news that God has worked through the life and death and resurrection of his son Jesus to save sinners from their sin, to bring sinners to himself, into his family, as citizens of his kingdom. That's good news that God has done that, that he's worked, that he's moved in history and in our lives. And Paul, he picks up his pen to write the letter of Philippians to say that good news changes everything. And as we walk through the four chapters of this book, we're going to see that. We're going to see how the gospel changes every prayer, every relationship, every hope, every ambition, every occupation, every marriage, every child. It, it changes, changes everything. And even today, as we look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we're going to see illustrations of how the gospel has changed even Paul's own life how it's shaped him, informed him in a specific way. And then we'll consider how the Lord might shape us in those same ways by his gospel. So let's read Philippians 1, 3 through 8 this morning and just consider how the gospel changed Paul, how it changes us because it changes everything. The word of the Lord this morning. Paul writes to the Philippian church, he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, 
For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Church, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, I think these few verses are massive in the vision that they give us for the Christian life. They're massive in the vision that they give us for the church of Jesus Christ. They're massive in the ideas that they put before us. I'd long to be able to spend you know, weeks and weeks on each of them, but we're going to look at just five ideas that are here. We're going to see five ways that the gospel has changed Paul, and then we're going to consider how in each of those ways we might be changed by the gospel as well. The first thing I want to point out is Paul's gospel-fueled gratitude. His gospel-fueled gratitude. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 again. Paul, he's writing, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so what I want you to hear is that every time Paul prays for the Philippians, right, in all his remembrance of them, in all his prayers for them, those prayers are characterized by gratitude, by thanksgiving. Those are the overriding themes of his thoughts about the Philippians and his prayers for the Philippians. He thinks and prays thankful thoughts and prayers. Now what I want to put before you this morning is that that is not the natural inclination of the human heart. And that to, to pray and think in patterns of gratitude like that, that can only be possible because of the gospel. So what's the relationship between the gospel and gratitude? Well, to begin with, we should recognize the fact that the human heart is primarily inclined not towards gratitude, but towards bitterness, entitlement, jealousy, those kinds of things, right? Resentment, that's the natural shape of the human heart. If we look at ourselves apart from the Lord's work in our lives, the things that are most natural to us are not to like overflow in thanksgiving for what we have, but rather what's most natural to us is to focus bitterly on what we don't have. Right? We think much more about what isn't in our hands than what is in our hands. That's just who we are naturally. And so imagine just some illustrations of this. Imagine that at your workplace, like the office that you work in, or if you're in a big company, just the team that you work on, your, your specific group of coworkers, imagine that at the end of this year, every one of your coworkers receives a substantial raise except for you. Let's say that happens and that, you know, the bosses, they're celebrating everybody's good work and their hard work and they give everybody on the team a raise except for you. What are you going to think? Right? What's going to be your natural reaction to that? Well, I think pretty much immediately you're going to start thinking about the work that you do and you're going to be comparing it to the work of your coworkers. And you're going to be measuring those two things against each other. And you're quickly going to think about all the things that you do that your coworkers don't do. Or you're going to be thinking about how Sally, how she, she wastes tons of time at the water cooler. Or how Tom is always cutting corners or not doing good work or not working with integrity or skipping out at 4.45 instead of 5 o'clock every day. You're, you're going to be thinking about the fact that your coworkers are getting something that they don't deserve and something that you believe you do deserve. That's resentment. And that would be, in that situation, I think the natural response of the human heart. Or think about a slightly similar but different scenario. Let's imagine that at the end of this year, your same workplace, you're given a good, sizable cash bonus 
for the work that you've done this year, right? Your boss comes to you and says, you know, hey, I want to celebrate the work that you've done this year. Enjoy this bonus on the company. And you, you do. You're grateful even for that bonus. Like you use it to spoil your kids or to take a trip or to pay off your credit card or whatever. But you're grateful for it when it happens, right? You receive that with joy and with gratitude. But then the next year rolls around and you work just as hard, maybe even harder, motivated by that bonus. And if no bonus comes, what are you thinking a year later? You're not thinking, man, I'm so grateful for that bonus I got a year ago. You're thinking, I really feel like I earned that again. I really feel like I deserve that again. That's entitlement, bitterness, resentment. And that is the natural shape of every human heart. Right? Our hearts are not naturally pointed towards what we have. Our hearts are naturally pointed to what we don't have that we feel like we deserve. All of us, all the time. That's the natural state of my heart. That's the natural state of your heart. In fact, I think as you sit here right now, you can probably think about some ways in which you've been longing for something that you don't have and maybe even bitter about what you once had that you don't have anymore. That's just the shape of our hearts. But what I would lay before you this morning is that the gospel profoundly changes the shape of our hearts so that we can walk in gratitude, so that we do walk in gratitude. See, gratitude, it's the opposite of resentment and bitterness and entitlement. And it's also one of the surest signs of a heart that has been changed by the power of the gospel. Right, a heart that's changed by the gospel, it understands that what it deserves is truly wrath and judgment. A heart that's changed by the gospel understands that it has sinned against a holy God and therefore stands under God's just condemnation because of that sin. A heart that is changed by the gospel understands that it is entitled to do nothing but death and condemnation. But then a heart that's changed by the gospel also understands that it has received because of the Lord's kindness and because of his free grace. Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, everything that God could give you, he's given it to you by his free grace. A heart that's been changed by the gospel realizes that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the heart that has received the gospel and understands the gospel and has been changed by the gospel. It's marked by those things. And so it knows that Jesus, he took what we actually deserve, right? The entitled, bittered heart thinks about what it thinks it deserves that it doesn't have. The heart that's changed by the gospel, it knows that Jesus has taken what we actually deserve, God's punishment for our sin, and given to us what we could never earn or ever deserve, his righteous reward for living a perfect and sinless life. And a heart that's been changed by the gospel, it so understands these things that it is itself transformed and therefore inclined toward gratitude in all of life. And so I say that this morning and I say it just to ask you, like how do you measure the state of your own heart today? Do you find yourself growing in gratitude? Or do you find yourself stuck in bitter resentment or entitlement? See, church, a sure sign that God is at work in us, a sure sign that we are growing in grace, a sure sign that we've understood the gospel is that we are growing not in resentment, 
but in gratitude. Not in entitlement, but in thankfulness. And we see that in Paul. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says. In every prayer of mine, thanksgiving for the Philippians is on Paul's list. That's only because of the gospel. The second way we see Paul shaped by the gospel here is in terms of a gospel-shaped joy that he walks with. I mean, he said that in verse 4. In every prayer of mine, praying for the Philippians, he's making his prayer, he says, with joy. In other words, he's not praying out of obligation. He's not praying because he feels like he ought to. It's not this empty religious prayer, right? He's praying sincere prayers of gratitude, but he's praying them with joy. What he prays is thanksgiving. How he prays, it's with joy. He's praying joyfully, not reluctantly, because the gospel has produced a joy in him. As he thinks about the Philippians, and as he thinks about God's work in their lives and his relationship with them, that produces in him a real and undeniable joy. And friends, I have to tell you, that's actually incredible to consider because we'll see this a little bit in verse 7, but more in the paragraphs that are ahead of us. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from prison. Right? He's writing these letters while chained to a Roman prison guard or confined to a, a Roman prison cell of some kind. Right? So his circumstances are not awesome. Like He's living in a season of, of trial and, and suffering. His faith is being tested. Yet still in that season, in that moment, he has joy. And it's a joy that is not in any way tied to his earthly circumstances. See, that's a lie that we often believe from our enemies. We often believe the lie that the key to joy in our lives is us in a different set of earthly circumstances. We think that if we could just change our earthly circumstances, then we would have joy. And so we think, what I need for joy is me plus a different relationship, or me plus a different job, or me plus better behaved children, or me plus fill in the blank, right? And we just think if we could take me and move me to a new set of circumstances, then I would have joy. Usually those circumstances involve something bigger, right? We just think, man, if I could just have my life but with a bigger bank account, or my life but with bigger muscles, or in a bigger house, or whatever, then finally I would have joy. But that is, friends, a lie. Because the key to joy is not you in a different set of circumstances. Scripture tells us that the key to joy is applying the circumstance of the gospel to every earthly circumstance. Let me explain what I mean by that. See, if you believe the gospel, and I pray that you do, if you believe that God himself in Christ endured the limits of life on this earth, if you believe that he endured the agony and the shame and the injustice of the cross, if you believe that he went to hell in your place to endure the righteous wrath of God against your sin, if you believe that that is true, then what that means is that you have a new and eternal circumstance. See, every earthly circumstance 
it will change, right? Your job will change. Your relationships will change. Your muscles will change. But, but Christ provides you with a new and unchanging eternal circumstance, a circumstance that will endure past the ends of time into the new heaven and the new earth. It will be infinite in its reality, this eternal circumstance that Christ has secured for you. And in addition to that, not only is this eternal circumstance unchanging, this eternal circumstance means that you've been accepted and loved and favored and delighted in by the high king of heaven. He has put upon you the fullest expression of his love and affection and favor. And Paul says, if you know that, if you know what it means to be in Christ, if you understand the eternal circumstance of the gospel, then you can look at any earthly circumstance, no matter how painful, no matter how unfair, no matter how difficult, and you can apply the truth of your eternal circumstance to it and still walk with joy. Does that describe you? Like in your life, do you walk with gospel-shaped, gospel-fueled, gospel-driven joy? Is your life characterized by the kind of joy that only your eternal circumstance in Christ can produce? And I don't think any of us will look at our earthly circumstances in the year 2020 and think this has been a year characterized by joy because of those earthly circumstances. Yet scripture calls us to joy. We're going to see it in Philippians 4. He's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So there's this double command that Paul's going to give us right when we get there. He's going to command us to rejoice, to walk with joy in the Lord. Friends, that's only possible in the midst of whatever trials you're facing. That's only possible in the midst of a pandemic. If you understand that joy comes because of the gospel, because of the eternal circumstance that Christ has secured for you. I pray that you know that. And I pray that you walk in that. The third way that we see Paul shaped by the gospel is because of the gospel-centered relationships that are a part of his life now because of the gospel. So in verse three, he says, I, I'm thanking God every time I pray for you. In verse 4, he says, I'm praying with joy. Now in verse 5, he tells us why he's praying. He's praying, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says, from the very beginning, Philippians, from the moment you came to Christ, from the moment we met one another and you followed me into faith in the gospel, we have been partners in the gospel. What does that mean? Well, that word that verse 5 uses, that word partnership, behind that is a Greek word. The word is koinonia, and often in our English Bibles, that's translated with the word fellowship. Now, usually, when you say the word fellowship to church folk, like our minds go to some kind of traditional church setting where there's like a potluck meal of some kind, um, and maybe that doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Maybe that does give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. But either way, that's not a particularly accurate understanding of how the New Testament envisioned this idea of fellowship, of koinonia. When the New Testament talks about koinonia, the idea that's in mind is really much more like 
a business partnership than something that involves your Aunt Sally at a church potluck fellowship. Right? Think about a business partnership for a minute. It's people coming together, sacrificing, contributing together, working together in order to accomplish a shared vision. Right? They've gathered around a common goal. They have one desire, and they're pooling their resources and their efforts in order to achieve that one desire. That's what the New Testament has in mind when it talks about koinonia, when it talks about fellowship. To me, like the, a much closer analogy, not like the church fellowship meal, but a much closer analogy is you know, the camaraderie um, that an athletic team experiences when they enjoy success together, right? Like those athletes, they train together, they sweat together, they work hard together, they sacrifice for one another and together all so that they can achieve a common goal, and that is success on whatever field or court they are playing on. And that's the kind of relationship that Paul enjoys with the Philippians and that all Christians should enjoy with one another. We have a common vision, a shared mission. It's not success on the ball field. No, it's the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul says that we should have partnership in that. We should be investing together in that and sacrificing together for that. And we should be striving side by side for that, he'll say later in chapter one. In other words, our relationships should be different with one another because of our shared mission in the gospel. Now, as I've pastored people, I can tell you that there are some significant and common roadblocks to the kinds of relationships that Paul envisions here and that he, he summons us to have in light of the gospel. I'll talk about three this morning. There are many, but I'll talk about three. These are roadblocks to the kind of gospel-centered relationships that we see Paul describing here. The first roadblock is the roadblock of idealism. This is a common reason why people just don't buy into and invest in a local church. Not just our local church, but any local church. Some people, because of idealism, they will say, you know what, that church isn't what it ought to be, and therefore I'm not going to buy in. But the problem is they just wander from church to church to church, and the main thing they do in those churches is they identify the ways in which that church isn't what it ought to be. They find the shortcomings of that local church. They see the problems in that local church, and they just say, you know what, this church really ought to be doing that, because they're not doing that, I'm not going to buy in. I'm going to invest. I'm not going to invest. In other words, they find the problem, and they bail. And if that's you, I don't imagine that that's anybody in this room right now. But let me just say, here's the issue with the person who doesn't buy into relationship in a local church because of their idealism. Right? If you ever find that ideal church... If you ever find that church that's doing everything right, that doesn't have any problems, like I just really hope you know that you won't fit into that church because that will be a church only of perfect people and you're not a perfect person. I'm not a perfect person. See, the reasons we struggle to reach the ideal is because we're sinners. But the the very fact that we're sinners is what brings us into the local church in the first place. Right, the fact that we're sinners doesn't disqualify us. It's actually the realization that we need to have in order to be qualified to belong here. We need to recognize our problem and recognize that Jesus is the solution to that problem, not some local church. And so once we get over that hurdle of idealism by recognizing that every church is a gathering of broken and imperfect people, then we can enjoy the kind of gospel-centered relationship that we see Paul commending here. 
The second roadblock to that relationship, I'll call it the roadblock of sensationalism. This is the person who is just looking for that perfect experience, right? They, they don't find Christian community scintillating enough. They're always looking for something more, something dynamic, something that moves them. And so they move from relationship to relationship to relationship, hoping to catch lightning in a bottle, right? It's the fear of missing out. And if they don't feel it here, then they're going to keep moving on until they find some place where they feel it. But of course, that's a fool's errand. They never find what they're looking for. If you're a sensationalist like this, and I just want to call you back to the profound beauty of any group of sinners gathering together and remaining in relationship together despite their sin because of the gospel. I mean, the simple fact that we gather as a church, the simple fact that we have prioritized gathering as a church in the midst of a pandemic, the simple fact that there are men and women here who are giving their lives to the young children of our church despite the pandemic, all of these things are so profoundly beautiful if we think about it. We're sinners in need of a savior, and we would never long for a community like this if the Lord didn't call us to that. And so the gathering, any church, really is remarkable. The third obstacle to real, meaningful, gospel-centered relationships is just good old-fashioned consumerism. It's people who see the church as a way to get their spiritual needs met, and that's it. And so rather than plugging in to serve, rather than giving of their lives and contributing to the work of the ministry, they just come and take and take and take. They're not committed to the church's mission. They're simply committed to what they can get from the church. But what I hope you know, brothers and sisters, is that the gospel calls us to so much more than that. I mean, the gospel calls us to a gospel partnership with one another where we come alongside one another with a shared mission and a shared vision to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to plant the gospel deeply in the city of Salisbury in Rowan County. The gospel calls us to live life with one another in such a way that we encourage one another and sharpen one another and when necessary rebuke one another so that we can better take the gospel to the ends of the earth and plant it deeply in the city of Salisbury. And I just, and I'll be honest and say that I stay awake at night dreaming about what Life Church could be if we all invested here as partners, as co laborers in the work that God is doing. If we stop walking like consumers, as we stop walking like people who are just going to point out the flaws in what's happening, if we stop walking like people who are constantly looking for something more or something better, but instead we just said, you know what, this is the place where I'm going to pour my life out for the sake of the gospel. Just wonder what the Lord might accomplish through us if we did that. Contrary to the way a lot of us live our lives, a local church is not an event that we attend as members of an audience. No, a local church is a group of co-workers who live for the gospel and share the gospel all week long as the church scattered and who then come together on the Lord's Day as the church gathered to love and encourage and to support one another in our shared mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Just imagine what the Lord might do through us if we all realized that and lived in light of that.
fourth thing that we see here in Paul, changed by the gospel, we see in him a gospel-driven hope. Look with me at verse 6. He says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot that I need to say about this verse. I'm going to save some of it until we're in chapter 2 where some of these same ideas come up again. But let me just make this point today. Paul walks and thinks and lives with a deeply rooted, gospel-driven hope for the Philippians. He knows that because God has done a work in them, that God will finish that work. He's going to finish what he started. Now, what's the work that he's talking about? It's the work of their salvation. He knows that because God began the work of saving the Philippians, he's going to finish the work of saving the Philippians. In other words, he knows that the entire Christian life that the Philippians are walking in is of grace. And so just as the Lord, in his grace, set his favor and affection on the Philippians when they came to Christ, he knows that the Lord will continue to set his favor and affection on the Philippians until the day of Christ. That is the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And so Paul has massive hope for the Philippians. That's not hope that they're going to get their lives in order. That's not hope that they're going to figure things out. That's not hope that they're going to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make something of themselves. And simply hope that God who has loved them and shown them grace from the very beginning will love them and show them grace until the very end because God finishes what he starts. The fifth thing, the fifth way that the gospel has shaped and changed Paul We see it in his gospel-formed affection for the Philippians. Read verses 7 and 8 with me again, and just listen to these tender words of affection because of the gospel. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, see he's in, in chains, both in my imprisonment, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then he adds, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mean, do you hear just how sweet and pointed Paul's love for these Philippian believers is? He says, I hold you all in my heart. He says in verse eight, I yearn for you all with the affection of of Christ Jesus. And to me, the most significant word there is that word all, right? He's talking about all of the Philippians. There's not one of the Philippians about whom he does not feel this way. And that's incredible because I'm sure that more than one of the Philippians was a pretty high maintenance person, right? I'm sure that there was a member of the Philippian church who kind of got underneath Paul's skin and rubbed him the wrong way. I'm sure that there were times when he was kind of frustrated with with one or more of these Philippian believers, yet he still says, I love all of you this way. I hold all of you in my heart. I have the affection of Christ Jesus for all of you, and I yearn for all of you. In other words, Paul is simply saying that the gospel has produced in him a love for each and every one of these people. He sees every one of these people as a person for whom Christ died. He sees every one of these people as a redeemed child of God. He sees every one of these people as saints through their union with Christ. He sees every one of these people 
in light of what God has done for them in Christ. And that moves him to love these people just as Christ has loved these people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul's writing to a very different church, and not about marriage, by the way, not about a wedding ceremony. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about love. And he says to that church in Corinth, if you have every spiritual gift imaginable, if you have every gift of the Spirit, but you don't have love for one another, then you're like a noisy cymbal and a clanging gong. He says if you have everything that you could have but love for one another, then it's pointless, worthless noise. Jesus told his disciples, the world outside, not the church, the world outside the church, they're gonna know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. In other words, because of your affection and love for other members of the church, you will commend the gospel in your witness of the gospel. Often we think about that the other way. Often we think that the way that we're gonna win the world, the way that we're gonna testify to the gospel to the ends of the earth is by loving the people in the world. We're gonna love the people who are in need in our community. We're gonna take love of the gospel to them. And, And we should do those things. We should also recognize the fact that Jesus tells us it's actually the opposite that will testify to and commend his gospel the most. It's not the way that we love the world that's gonna make the world take notice. It's the depth of our love for and affection for one another that's gonna make the world take notice. And so as Life Church here in Salisbury, we should just imagine what our witness might look like if we loved one another like we see Paul loving the Philippians. We should imagine what the people of Rowan County might come to believe about Jesus if they saw us loving one another in a way that looked like the way Jesus loves. We should imagine that. And then we should look to the gospel where we see the perfect example of perfect love where Jesus laid down all of his rights and all of his privileges to come to earth, to live among us, and to die for us. He entered into our mess, and he knew our pain so that he might raise us to new life in him. We should look to the fact that it took love unimaginable for him to do that. And may we then love one another with that same love, with, as Paul says here, all of the affection of Christ Jesus. Pray with me, church. Father, we do pray that you would cultivate in us this kind of love for one another, this kind of love for your church. Give us the very affection of your son, Jesus, for our brothers and sisters in our local church. And may the world take notice of the depth of that love, of the sweetness of that affection. Lord, we pray that you would give us a hope that is shaped by your gospel and driven by your gospel. May we be confident that you will indeed finish what you begin in us and in the work that you call us to do. May we grow in gospel-centered relationships, giving ourselves to your people and to your church not as consumers, Lord, but as people who who live to give of ourselves for the mission of your church. 
May we be people who learn to see every circumstance in life through the eternal circumstance of the gospel. And may that give us joy. And then may we be people who are marked by and characterized by gratitude and thanksgiving because we recognize how immense your grace and your love is for us. May that be true of us, Jesus. We pray in your name.